Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? How we doing, friends? I'm excited for this episode. Um, If you didn't know, I'm kind of a nerd. Uh, Just a a little bit. Just a little bit of a nerd. And um, one of the things that I always hated is when I would try to approach the Bible... I think there would be these presuppositions that you're just supposed to know how to pick up the Bible and read it for what it is. Yeah. Um, And so because no one gave me like the Bible 101 class. And like when I say 101, I took a like I took a non-accredited hermeneutics class in high school. Mm -hmm. That ain't what I mean. What I mean is. A simple conversation before you have any other conversations about the Bible, which is, what are the main movements of it? How do I know what each thing is? Where do I look? What's the time period? How does it progress? How's it structured? Mm -hmm. Like literally, what is the book and how is it organized? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm going to try to do for you today. We're going to start a series about how to utilize the Bible for divine intention and divine interaction. And I think one of it is like the first thing might be just like knowing its parts. Just like knowing how to get to where you want to be to look up what you want to look up. Um, so everybody I think knows that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And I think everybody knows that Genesis starts the beginning of the book and Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. Genesis 1 through 11 encompass God only knows how many years of time. And they're very macro-based stories. Mm -hmm. Lots of times, a lot of Old Testament scholars just call them myth. They're not even convinced they happened. Um, And then the real story picks up in Genesis chapter 12 with a guy named Abraham. Father Abraham. Yeah, that guy. And God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with a fallen people, a fallen world, in which God's going to redeem said world. And I think that's always been God's plan, because in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw God create the world and humanity and dwell with them here on earth. Genesis 3, humanity chooses or makes a decision that messes that relationship up. And then God begins to try to fix it. He tries to fix it with Noah. Just kill everybody off except this blameless man. Well, that man responds in Genesis 9 the exact same way, a parallel storytelling of Genesis 3, And then God tries to start over in a nonviolent way with the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. 
Genesis chapter 12, you get Abraham in this story of a family, a single family through whom which God is going to save the world. That family grows across three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which the rest of the story of Genesis is their story, culminating in the life of Joseph. And then you skip a lot of years, an unknown amount of years, because the Bible says the end of Genesis is the life of Joseph, the life and death and burial of Joseph. The beginning of Exodus, I think it's Exodus 1-3 or 1-5, and there was a Pharaoh in the land of Egypt where Joseph was second in command in Egypt. We've come so far that Joseph was second in command, and we're at a place in Exodus now where the text says, and there was a Pharaoh who did not know who Joseph was. Mm-hmm. Massive gap in time. And then you get the story of the Exodus. Arguably the most important movement in all of the Old Testament. Story of the Exodus. Specifically Passover. Moses dies in Deuteronomy. You pick up with the judges. And then from judges, you move into Joshua. And Joshua is the story of colonization. I'll be honest, it ain't a great look for our people. uh, It's not a great look for them. Um, It's an ancient culture, and it was the way they did things. But in a modern look in the rearview mirror, it was not okay, and we shouldn't condone it just because they did it. Um, This is a huge conversation topic, though. Much more beyond than what we're going to go into here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, And in that process of colonization, you get to a point where the people want a king. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, tell the story of the kings of Israel. That is what those those books do. That's where you'll get the stories of David and Solomon and all of David's wild kids. And then you get the end of the Old Testament, which is the prophets. Mm -hmm. The prophets will range any part of the kingly era. So from 1000 BCE to, you know, like 400 BCE, something like that. Mm. It will range anywhere in those 600 years. They will always be speaking against injustice and offering a message of repentance and salvation. Mm-hmm. You do have a deportation of the people. Israel goes back into slavery by the Babylonians. And then you have the temp the first temple, Solomon's temple is destroyed. And then you have this is encompassed in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, the post exilics. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet during the exile of Babylon. 
Ezra Nehemiah marked what's called the post-exilic period. A lot of post-exilic prophets. And post-exilic period, when they come back out of slavery the second time, returning back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. Then, so those are the like kind of main movements of the Old Testament. Jesus comes from the line of David. That promise gets given to David in the Samuel narratives that he will forever sit on the throne. Like his, his kingdom will have no end. And that's why you get Matthew 1 in the New Testament. Jesus comes from the line of David. That's why he's born in Bethlehem, all those things. That marks the New Testament. The New Testament has four Gospels in the book of Acts. And from that point on, literally, I want you to hear me say that again. The Gospel, or the New Testament, has four Gospels and the book of Acts. There's 27 letters in the Greek New Testament. Or there's 27 documents. Five of them are narrative. The rest of them are ancient letters. They are literally you reading someone else's mail. Most likely, you reading someone's mail from a church leader Telling them why they have all the problems they have in their church. Outside of the four Gospels told from four very unique perspectives, Matthew told from a very Jewish perspective, trying to show you that Jesus is a type of Moses. That's why you have the transfiguration and all of those things, those elements. Everything happens on a mountain. Mark is most likely probably the first Gospel written. And it's not a great, like, narrative piece. It's literally written in the heart of persecution. Mark chapter 8 through 10 and all of that language about suffering. Mark is probably just them trying to get something for tradition down on paper. Yeah. Luke is the gospel for the vulnerable, the gospel for the outcast, the gospel for the marginalized. Luke is the only gospel that has the story of the Good Samaritan. Mm-hmm. And then you have John. John's its own kind of thing. Um, John's a very theologically charged book or gospel. Um, It's very well structurally, like it's very well structured. It's based around these nine signs and the speeches that accompany those signs. Um, It has an amazing, like, uh, opening to it. It has some of the best storytelling of all the Gospels because there are several stories contained in all four Gospels. Um, yeah, it, the Gospel of John, if you weren't going to read any book in the Bible, you were only going to read one. It's the Gospel of John for me. Um, and then you have the book of Acts, which is a single narrative across 28 chapters. 28, 26, can't really remember one of those 28 or 26 chapters where the church decides how to be the church. And the second half of it, you're just following one guy around as he goes and does all his things and proclaims a message to the cultural others of the ancient world for a Jewish people. Mm-hmm. 13 of the remaining letters or 13, yeah, 13 of the remaining letters in the book uh, in the new Testament are from, 
the Apostle Paul. He's talked about in the book of Acts. And then you have some miscellaneous letters. You got a couple letters from Peter. You got some letters from John. You have Revelation, which everybody knows. You have Hebrews, which I think is a very underestimated book or undervalued book. James, Jude, you've got a few other books sprinkled or letters sprinkled in there. But those are the main, like, that is all the Bible is. Right. Notice, I could tell when we first started, you were bored out of your mind. Yep. Because you thought that we were about to do this for 25 minutes. Yes. I told you the entire Bible and, like, did set up for it in, like, 12 minutes. Yeah. It's really not that complicated. No, it's not. It doesn't, I think we've made it into this boogeyman. Yeah. That is so difficult for us to even dream of like approaching um, in some kind of way that we don't even try anymore. Because it's become this daunting elephant where it's like, but I didn't go to seminary and somebody's going to tell me I didn't do it right. And what if they don't like it? What if I'm wrong? What if God's upset with me? We don't give any kind of passion or grace for divine pursuit. We don't give any points. Like, there's no E for effort when the average person thinks about approaching the Bible. Mm. It's like, I either pass or fail. Yeah. There's no in-between. We give ourselves no grace for the way in which we approach the Bible looking for the divine. Mm. And I think we impose expectations on ourselves of what that meeting should look like. Not the way in which you facilitate the meeting. You do have control over that, and you should have control over that. Yeah. But I think sometimes we get so focused in a way, almost as if we would say, God must meet me like this because they did last time. And if they don't, then the attempt at reading was a failure. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, we do not give ourselves permission to read the Bible for the attempt of meeting the divine. And if it doesn't show up that way today, we feel like it was a failure. But what if it wasn't? Mm. Because I can tell you that a lot of the time when I read scriptures, in the moment when I read them, I don't really have this, like, revelatory takeaway mm -hmm. but as i continue to read and i put pieces together and i build a worldview that i think most best reflects the message of jesus those things start to be put together i start to form my convictions i start to see where god is working on me and how god is asking me to pursue progress in my own life we can't look at the Bible as this daunting thing because nobody will ever read it. Yeah. That's the problem we have right now. Nobody wants to read it because we've turned it into this thing where you've got to study all the ancient words and you got to know the biblical, you got to know the, the biblical languages and you got to do word studies and you got to, you got to parse out all the grammar. We've made it into a chore and it's no longer divine delight. It's no longer enjoyable. It's no longer refreshing. It's cumbersome. Mm. And look, don't hear me saying that I don't appreciate those claims. I do think this is a book that we should approach faithfully. Mm. 
but there's a far cry from approaching it faithfully and approaching it the way that we've been taught. Yeah. You don't have to approach it that way. Most faithful Christians on average, when they go to church on any given Sunday, do you know how long their sermon is? It's long enough that they don't even call it a sermon. They call it a homily. Yeah. And it's usually somewhere between 9 and 15 minutes. Right. Um, on average, it's closer to probably 9 to 12. I think some traditions, specifically conservative southern traditions, like living in the south, the Bible Belt, Baptist, evangelical, all the things that we grew up in, we've in such a pursuit for protecting the Bible, we've made the Bible a boogeyman that people hate. Yeah. And honestly, I have a deep love for the Bible, but I had to give up that view of it in order to stay in love with it. Mm. Because that view of it, it took any joy of reading it away. It took any joy of being able to just look and read the stories of Jesus for what they are. Stories of the way in which a divine God met a hurting people. You couldn't, like, I was not taught to just read the Bible as a story. I was taught to read the Bible as a textbook for how to live my life. And I got to parse all these things out. And I got to do these hermeneutical jump rope things like age of accountability and all this other nonsense to explain away the problems that I don't want included in my worldview. That's what I don't want you to do. Because if there's one thing I've learned from reading that book and, and faithfully listening to others who read that book is that in order to truly find the truth that that book's trying to communicate to us, we need all the voices telling us the ways in which they read those stories. It can't just be me. It can't just be me, the white American, middle-class, cisgendered, lifelong Christian male who is privileged enough to have two fixing to graduate with a third degree, being the only person that has voice and dictation over what those stories mean and the yeah. way in which people can meet the divine in those stories. I need people to approach it as a story because the contextualization of those stories matters. That's right. At the, you know, by the time this episode comes out two days ago, we will have released an episode on one of our other podcasts, uh, called a closer look, which is uh, a Bible podcast. And I detail out acts chapter 15. And in that one of my primary takeaways is that I'm quite frustrated because in that moment, a very focal moment where the church is deciding the future of how a people want to act in order to stay in fellowship with them, their voice is not even present. Yeah. It's a bunch of Jewish men having a conversation for a categorical other people group, a people group other than themselves, yeah. and their voice is not present. That's been a problem for far too long in Christian circles. Yeah. That's what we've got to stop. We need, in order to find the true truth of this divine book, 
my pneumatology is high enough that I need the way in which the Holy Spirit is communicating to each of those voices. I need the traumatized black male. Yeah. I need the oppressed black woman. Yeah. I need the Asian American. I need the person from the honor shame culture. I need the poor person. Person. I need the rich person. I need the Republican. I need the Democrat. I need the white nationalist. I need the, you know, the colored socialist. I need the Marxist. I need all of those voices to tell me what the truth of the divine, the divine truth in that book is. Because if there's one thing I am positive of, it's that God has shown me in that book that they love all of those people. And if I'm the only one that gets voice in telling them how God loves them, I think I missed the point of the story. That's why I want you to read it as a story. That's why I think it's important to have voice as a story and not a textbook. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.